the supply chain standards are a new animal, as you put it, in that it brings in many more groups that were not exposed to SIP before. Welcome, everyone, to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm here, as usual, with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. He's going to introduce the subject and the guest of today's show. Andrew, how's it going? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Nate. Our guest today is Dr. Joseph Baugh. Uh, Dr. Baugh is a managing consultant at GuideHouse. Now, I know Dr. Baugh from his time as a, a NERC-SIP auditor at WEC. Uh, WEC is one of the regional entities that enforces the NERC-SIP standards for you know cybersecurity in the, in the electric system. What I remember of Joe is his deep understanding of SIP issues, and so I'm very happy to have him as a guest today. Our topic is what's happening in the world of the NERC-SIP standards, especially what's happening with the new supply chain security rules. All right, here's you and the doctor. Hello, Joe. Thank you for uh, joining us on the podcast. Before we start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about GuideHouse? Uh, sure. It's uh, certainly a pleasure to be here with you today, Andrew. I've worked in the electrical sector of the critical public infrastructure for going on 48 years now. I started in this field in 1973 as a groundman on a 230,000-volt transmission line construction project in Colorado. I work primarily on 115 kV through 765 kV transmission line construction projects across North American electrical grid until 1982. And then I joined Arizona Electric Power Cooperative, which was a generation and transmission utility in Arizona. I worked on the live line and bare hand transmission maintenance crew there until 1990. And at that time, I took the first of many career changes and I became a power system operator in the utilities system control center. Now, keep in mind, at the time I moved into this new position as a lineman, I couldn't even spell PC, much less operate one. But this move coincided nicely with the introduction of PCs and networking technology into what was then a mainframe EMS SCADA environment in the control center. So I quickly became interested in this new computer environment and started to study computer programming and developing spreadsheet models to replace these massive paper sheets we used at that time to track and reconcile energy transactions and other activities in the control center. So I enrolled in the Bachelor of Science and Computer Science degree program at the University of Arizona. As I was working through that program in 1998, I was offered a job managing the cooperative's tier two internet service provider, and that was where I first became exposed to cybersecurity policies and practices. In 2008, I moved back into power operations and became the power trading services manager where I oversaw our power trading and scheduling operators. As a subject matter expert, I also developed several APCO NERT compliance programs, which back in the early days of SIP. And then I took early retirement from APCO in 2011 and immediately went to work for the Western Area Coordinating Council, or WECC, as a senior compliance auditor for cybersecurity. Uh, sadly, I failed retirement for the second time in November 2019 when I retired from WEX. I went back to work with GuideHouse as a management consulting in December of that year. 
uh, here at Guidehouse, I've enjoyed working with Guidehouse clients across the electrical and gas energy sectors to help them establish, enhance, and improve their compliance programs across the gamut of the NERC-SIP reliability standards and other required standards in the gas industry sector. Although I am familiar with all of the SIP standards, I focused primarily recently on the NERC-SIP supply chain standard. A new supply chain risk management wrinkle did appear this year, though, when President Trump signed Executive Order 13920 to protect the bulk electric system from cyber attacks by vendors of electrical equipment and their associated control system. So that's pretty much what I'm doing now. So Nate, let me let me jump in just real quick here. A couple of things. Um, you know, one thing that that strikes me about Dr. Baugh's background is that he was in the power grid since the very beginning. He's been around a long time. That's you know a kind way of saying he and I are both old. Um, but you know, he's seen the evolution of the power grid as it went from something that had very little to do with computers to the point today where it's heavily computerized. Uh, you know, he started as a lineman, which meant, you know, working with high voltage power lines, nothing to do with computers, moved into the control center. That's the EMS, the energy management system, where in the day it was mainframes, mainframe computers controlling the power grid to, you know, all the way through today where everything is computerized. The, the, smallest, the smallest devices that you buy I have a little computer inside of them. And the other thing that uh, that he he mentioned uh, in passing in his in his uh, his introduction and he's going to be talking about this all the way through is the NERCSIP standards and you know Dr. Bond knows them cold and he's using a numbering system that I think we have to go through. Um you know, everyone knows the NERC-SIP standards are the regulation for the power grid, the cybersecurity regulations. There are 14 standards numbered 001 through 014. Um, the standards have versions, and the versions are the dash. So if you hear something like um, SIP 5-6, it means SIP 005 version 6 of that piece of the standard. When you hear requirements, R1.3.9, R is requirement, and each of the requirements in each of the standards has a number, uh, a paragraph number. So when you're looking through the standard, you can find the the, the requirement. So often, you know, Dr. Ball will throw stuff out like, uh, um, you know, SIP 5-6 R1.3, and he's talking about the, the document 005, version 6 of the document, uh, you know, paragraph 1.3 in the document. So that hopefully will make things a little easier to follow as we as we go through the rest of the interview. You mentioned on the end there that you've been focusing at Guidehouse on the the new supply chain stuff in in NERC-SIP. Um, can you tell me why that is? I mean, is this is this the latest and greatest, or is is there is there some other reason? Well. Supply chain risk management is really just the newest area of the SIP compliance standards. Uh, most of the compliance standards focus on cybersecurity protective measures and controls, uh, cybersecurity policies, uh, procedures, training, things like that. But FERT recognized that there was a gap in coverage that comes from our vendors, uh, you know, because pretty much most utilities, as I did when I was in IT, we just uh, order stuff, configure it, and plug it in. Well, there's a lot of concern lately about foreign adversaries. 
And so, you know, we don't really know in any great depth who our vendors are other than what we refer to as a primary vendor. So the uh, supply chain risk management standards were set in place to get a handle on that potential vector for attack. And there have actually been several successful attacks on electrical participants through vendors, not necessarily the major vendors such as EMS SCADA, but more smaller vendors who don't have the technology backgrounds or the team members to provide uh, robust cybersecurity protections. And so that's that's introduced a, a new vector for attack. So the supply chain standards were introduced to address that gap in cybersecurity coverage. And can you can you go just a little deeper? Um, you know, I mean, I work at Waterfall. Uh, we have customers in the in the electric sector. We're starting to see these uh, supplier audit questionnaires coming by. Um, can you talk about motivation? What what problems were these are these these new standards uh, intended to solve? What kinds of risks are they intended? to take off the table? Well, they're actually intended to remove vendor sources as a vector of attack. Now, one of the problems with the supply chain standards is vendors are obviously not directly in scope for it. And so the electrical grid participants, the registered entities, are required to evaluate vendor risk from uh, products and services obtained for high and medium impact BES cyber systems. But they can't really control the vendor. They can't force the vendor to do anything. So that's the, you mentioned those questionnaires. And, and of course, as part of our compliance program development, we've written quite a few of those questionnaires. And there are several industry questionnaires, uh, NATF, for example. I don't think their last version was approved by NERT, but they're working on a, a comprehensive questionnaire. But the purpose of those is to gain some idea of the cybersecurity precautions and protective measures that the vendors are doing. And the whole thing is to identify risk to the bulk electric system from vendor products and services and mitigate those risks. So to the extent that vendors are handling those risks at their end, that's the purpose of the questionnaire. But it's also to identify the residual risk that exists. And as you know, there's always residual risk, no matter how sound your protective measures and controls are. And that's to identify additional measures that the grid participants can take to provide additional protection from that attack vector that may appear as a result of procuring products or services from various vendors. Can you give us a little more detail? You know, can you give us some examples of what kind of um you know what kind of questions uh, the 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 uh, the NERC entities are asking their vendors. What what kinds of things are they are they trying to ferret out? Can you give us some concrete examples? Sure. Uh, for example, uh, quite a few of the questionnaires I've worked on and have looked at uh, look into what kind of background checks the vendors do for their employees. You know, uh, 
NERC entities are required to adhere to SIP 4, which looks into background checks and, and other things. But there'll be questions like that. So the questionnaires in general are modeled on the cybersecurity standards. For example, they'll ask about what type of perimeter protections do you use for the vendor cyber systems? And they'll also ask about vendor affiliates. Are you affiliated with anybody? And this kind of goes back to that Executive Order 13920 point. But what type of affiliates do you have? Are you owned or controlled by someone who's on the State Department list of prescribed entities or foreign adversaries? Uh, that's one example. Uh, the firewall stuff's another example. We ask about physical security. What type of physical security measures do you take to prevent someone from introducing, you know, malware into your system, either at your facility or in the shipping process to the ultimate customer? So that's another example. And uh, let's see, probably, yeah, I think that that runs a gamut of it. So if we look into personnel, cyber, and physical security protections. Andrew, you asked Dr. Bog for, for some examples, and he gave you examples of security, but I still don't know what kind of attacks we're trying to prevent here. What, it, what exactly is the problem? That's a good question. I mean, uh, Joe gave us some, some uh, answers to the question that talked about examples of security measures the attacks that that uh, i understand the the drafting team was was worried about at at uh, you know when they were putting the standard together imagine uh you know somebody walks into a manufacturer they're producing uh i don't know computers you know industrial computers that are going out into substations um and walks in with a usb stick and uh, takes a batch of a hundred of these computers and ins you know installs malware on these computers from the USB stick, or uh, you know something a little bit nastier. Imagine that uh, there's an employee in a, a shipping warehouse that says, "Oh look, here's that batch of computers," um, or you know a, a, a different batch of computers, computers coming from a, a computer manufacturer destined for uh, a, a control center in the power grid, and takes the box containing the computer, you know, pulls it out, substitutes a box with a different computer that looks exactly the same as the original, but has some, you know, radio hardware installed so that it can be controlled remotely by someone who is, you know, some distance away, parked in a van outside the fence, outside the security perimeter. Uh, or, you know, maybe an even nastier example is something like what uh, what happened recently with solar winds where in the course of installing software the software that came from the software manufacturer had malware embedded in it and now the malware is running inside the control system um, you know all of these are examples of you know ways to get nasty stuff into the control system by tampering with the manufacturer, as opposed to tampering with equipment once it's at the power utility. Like I said, I, I've seen a couple of these questionnaires come by from different NERC entities. One of the things that that puzzles me, I mean, I've looked at the SIP standards, but obviously you're you're much more familiar with them than I am. One of the things that puzzles me is, is how deep do you go? I mean, we get asked, um, 
how can you, you know, what what policy, what procedures do you have in place for uh, making sure that when you get a shipment from one of your suppliers, the shipment has not been tampered with in transit? Well, you know, what? How, how deep do we do we have to go? I mean, tampered with could mean everything from from uh, you know, swap the box out with a different box full of different circuit boards with different chips on them. Do we have to check every circuit board? Do we have to check every chip? Well, how, how deep do you have to go here? Not under the SIP 13 standard. So, you know, NERC and FERC both recognize that this is a significant additional compliance burden on entities. There's a significant cost to doing these vendor risk assessments. So typically they're looking at the primary vendor. So the primary vendor could be the OEM. It could be a value-added reseller. It just depends on the specific product or services. Part of the reason for the questionnaire is to dig a little deeper, but there was never the intention in the SIP 13 standards or the supply chain standards to go all the way back down the supply chain to the raw material. I mean, ultimately, if you really wanted to dig deep, you could do that. Now, uh, Executive Order 13920 may require a little bit deeper dive, and I can talk about that in a bit. But so the primary vendor should be identified, and that's the organization that should receive the questionnaire. And that was by intent, and that was to really not send people chasing down a bunny trail. So the questionnaire digs into the vendor supply chain but it's up to the vendor to supply that information. Before we go on, let me uh, let me define a few terms that I, I know Dr. Baugh is going to be using in, in the rest of the interview. It, it, it can be confusing if, uh, if you haven't heard these terms before. He's going to use the term BES a lot. He's used it a couple of times already. This is the bulk electric system. In North America, this is the grid, the big transmission grid. We're talking big iron generators, the high-voltage transmission lines, uh, the power grid control centers. We're not talking about distribution systems for, you know, even cities as small as mine. I live in a city of 1.3 million people. The The city of Calgary's distribution system is not in scope, is out of out of reach of the NERC-SIP standards. It doesn't apply to distribution systems. It applies to the, the grid that serves all of the cities, not an individual city. When we say in scope, we're talking about what kinds of systems and computers do the NERC SIP rules apply to? And, uh, you know, the bulk electric system, that's a legally defined term. These are these are regulations. So the, the, they've carefully defined certain terms. Bulk electric system is, is very carefully defined. And one of the ways it's defined is voltage. So, you know, Dr. Boz mentioned, uh, you know, uh, voltage a couple of times. Um, basically, everything over 100,000 volts tends to be in scope for the NERC-SIP standards. You know, what does that mean? Well, you know, the voltage in my house here is 120 volts. This is what you have in, in homes in North America. In Europe, it's 240 volts. So we're talking very high voltage stuff, 100,000, you know, uh, 100,000 volts, 100 kilovolts. Uh, you know, Dr. Baugh mentioned in his, in his introduction, he'd worked on 700 kilovolt transmission lines, 700,000 volts. 
And, you know, the substations that convert 100,000 volts into 700,000 volts, they're in scope. They're part of the, the bulk electric system. That's what NERC-SIP applies to. Little stuff like you see in your in your neighborhoods that turn 1,000 volts down into the 100 volts that, that come into the house. No, they're, they're not in scope. And he's mentioned a couple of times the executive order. This was an order back in May of 2020 from the American administration that forbids the biggest power utilities forbids them buying stuff from a list of banned suppliers forbids them buying just about anything from uh, certain businesses that are in a sense controlled or owned or under the thumb of hostile foreign governments. So that's the executive order that, that he's mentioned a couple of times. So with that background, hopefully the, the rest of the interview will, will make a little more sense. You mentioned the executive order a couple of times. Um, how does that how does that play here? There's a key difference between the executive order and the SIP supply chain standards. So as you, you're probably familiar, the NERC SIP standards only operate at 100,000 kV or higher. So BES cyber systems or bulk electric system cyber systems are those that operate the grid, either control centers, transmission stations, or generation facilities at 100,000 kV or higher. And that's typically known as the transmission level. So the executive order actually lowers that threshold to 69,000 kV. And so the lower you get, if you're familiar with the grid, the lower you get in voltage, the affected control systems and physical facilities expands exponentially. And so by introducing these vendor risk assessment requirements down to the 69,000 kV level, the work effort and the cost to do the vendor risk assessments for each electric piece of electrical equipment and its control systems greatly increases. So that's the key impact of Executive Order 13920. Now, I followed the comments section in that quite diligently, and many respondents discussed the, the cost and the effort it would require to do that. And as I understand it, uh, the Secretary of Energy's task force recently came out with a somewhat limited initial scope. And it's really to protect critical military stations. And so utilities that support those, they're going to be involved. But it's certainly not going to be as widespread as uh, the, the electrical sector initially feared. So the key difference between the SIP standards and the executive order is the SIP standards only focus on control systems. So we're only talking about electronic systems, and those are separated into three separate impact levels. Low impact, which is 85% of the control systems operated at 100 kV or higher. Medium impact and high impact, which are the larger facilities, the more critical substations, control centers, and generation facilities. But remember, it's only the control systems. Now, there is a SIP standard, SIP 14, which focuses on identifying transmission stations or substations that are identified as SIP 14 critical sites, and that's fairly complex. But the executive order, on the other hand, rolls in electrical equipment, gener uh, generators, 
transformers, circuit breakers. There's a list of them in the, in the uh, executive order. So it's bringing in physical hardware, which are not currently covered under the SIP standards. But it also brings in their associated control system systems. So that's where the additional work effort comes in. So now you not only have to worry about the cyber systems, you have to worry about the hardware, the, the uh, what we call big iron in the electrical industry, the uh, the electrical equipment itself. So you got to look at those vendors and you look at the control system vendors for those. So that's the key difference between the SIP standards and the executive order, along with the increased workload caused by the lower threshold for the executive order. So we're talking about the supply chain uh, topics, the, the, you know, SIP 13 and the related uh, elements of the, of the standard having to do with, with supply chain security. Um, how big a deal is this? I mean, you know, NERC entities have been dealing with the, the NERC standards for what a decade now. Um, is this sort of more of the same or is it, is it a completely new animal? How, you know, how big a deal is this? Well, the supply chain standards are a new animal, as you put it, in that it brings in many more groups that were not exposed to SIP before. For example, in the projects I've worked on, we've worked with procurement teams, uh, supply chain specialists at cooperatives, uh, vendor relationship managers. I mean, just a whole bunch of people that never were exposed to SIP in the other standards because they primarily related to cyber and physical security precautions. So security teams are involved, uh, certainly IT teams, uh, EMS SCADA teams, they were all involved and they're still involved as support. But this really, the supply chain standards really increased the workload for organizational members who never had to do it before. So there's quite a learning curve. You have to bring them up to speed on what compliance is, you know, what the ex expectations are. And, you know, as with any organizational change, you run into some resistance. Uh, people, you know, that's not how we do it here, so we're not going to do that. So there's that to some degree. Uh, the technical people who I've worked with on these projects are right on board with it. To them, it's just another piece that they have to do. You know, it's, it's more workload for them, obviously, and they have to fit that in with their regular duties. But it's the new people who haven't been exposed to compliance issues before. It's where we spent quite a bit of our time uh, getting them on board, understanding their processes, rolling their processes into the supply chain risk management plans. And the cost is going to vary. I mean, uh, a lot of people want to know what it costs, but it really depends on the scope and the scope of the applicable cyber systems. You know, if I'm a very small entity, I probably don't have any medium impact or high impact BS cyber systems. So my exposure is pretty limited. If I'm a larger utility, I'm going to have a much greater impact. So the workload and the costs, they go up commensurately. Yeah, I mean, one of the issues that, that I've seen is that SIP um, 13, as I understand it, doesn't say here is what your supplier audit, security audit program should look like. It says here's some requirements and you have to put the program together yourself and then execute it yourself. And so suppliers... 
are, who, you know, who are supplying multiple NERC entities are getting sort of different security program interpretations from every different entity. And, you know, it's, it's not like you can go to the standard and, you know, call up the local auditor and say, you know, what do I have to do? You, uh, you get a different, in a sense, a different, a different view of the elephant from every one of your customers. And, you know, some customers interpret the standard differently than other ones do. It's, it's not like you have, you know, eight audit regions you have to deal with. It's like you have 23 customers, each of which has their own, their own requirements. Um, can you talk to that? Is that, you know, is, is there any sort of standardization of these audit programs going on that, that vendors can look forward to? Uh, well, I mentioned uh, NATF and their questionnaire earlier. That was one effort to uh, standardize the process. Uh, the EEI also has a process that they were working on to standardize it. But one size truly does not fit all because not everybody's alike. Not everybody has the same set of vendors. Not everybody has the same requirements, although, you know, grid operational systems tend to be fairly common, there's still enough uniqueness from one entity to the next that really you couldn't prescribe a do ABC and you'll be compliant. Really, each entity has to look at their environment, look at their vendor set, and look at what they need to do. So you've been working with uh, power system entities, uh, you know, NERC entities for, for some time on these, uh, these new standards. Can you talk about how's it going? I mean, is it working? Is it reducing the risk? Are there other mistakes people are making? Are there lessons that you can you can you know gotchas you can you can explain to people and say, hey, you got to watch out for this? What is your experience of applying this? Probably one of the key problems that I've seen is the presence of business silos, and that's not unique to supply chain compliance. It's really inherent across all compliance programs. Uh, so you have different business units who have a different approach to things. They procure things differently. And so that that's introduced a, a level of complexity that uh, has created some problems in developing the supply chain plans themselves. And then the implementation, one of the things we've done to combat that is to do some extensive training, uh, training in the plan, training in uh, the processes, how do people submit those vendor risk questionnaires, how do they evaluate them when they come back. So we've really been spending quite a bit of time trying to introduce standardization where there really was none before. So coming to current events, I mean, what's in the news the last little while has been the the SolarWinds Orion breach, where, uh, you know, the bad guys, somebody broke into the, the SolarWinds development process and managed to insert malware into uh, a software update to the product. And that, that thing got installed at like 17 or 18,000 organizations. Um is that the kind of supply chain software supply chain breach that we're talking about here? Would NERC, you know, would would the SIP thirteen and related standards have prevented the SolarWinds Orion type of of incident? To some extent. So I mentioned the uh, R one point two parts, and there's a specific it's R one point two point four that deals with. Uh, no, I'm sorry, one point two point five that deals with software 
sources and integrity of the patches downloaded from that. To some degree, that might have mitigated it, although it probably would not have on a day one attack. SolarWinds is an IT management software and remote monitoring system. So that falls under the purview of SIP7. And so entities are required to monitor their systems and you know, do vulnerability assessments and all of that. And SolarWinds supports that. But because SolarWinds and other products like that are integral to managing critical systems, the uh, breach of that really introduces a huge problem across the industry. So the SIP 13 standard does address that to some degree in uh, when it addresses software patches and integrity of the software patch, as well as uh, SolarWinds would be required as a vendor to notify entities of this vulnerability. So it does address it to some degree, but it doesn't provide protection for a day one attack like that. You know, you have to go into your SIP 8 critical cyber incident identification and resolution program to really address it. So there again, the supply chain standards should support the identification of it, but you have to go somewhere else to, to fix it. And, and really mitigate the damage caused by that. Waterfall Security Solutions is the OT security company, and we are pleased to announce the Waterfall Industrial Security Institute. The Institute is a YouTube video series focused on industrial cybersecurity education and solutions. The first chapter of episodes features the top 20 cyber attacks on industrial control systems. Understanding attacks is vital to designing robust cyber defenses. The Top 20 series introduces enterprise security practitioners to industrial operations concepts, while introducing engineering practitioners to cybersecurity offensive and defensive concepts. The Institute is making the first three of 20 episodes in the chapter available at launch. Number one, ICS Insider. Number two, IT Insider. And number three, common ransomware. Please subscribe to Waterfall's Industrial Security Institute at youtube.com forward slash waterfall security solutions. So Nate, uh, a word of clarification here. There's a lot of a lot of buzz in the industry about the SolarWinds Orion incident. But to be fair, um, you know, the buzz is because of what could have happened to OT systems to industrial control systems, not because of what did happen. What happened was there was the SolarWinds malware installed in some OT systems, in some control systems, because the software was running in those systems. Uh, it was installed in lots of IT systems, but the malware was remote control malware. It was operated manually by remote control. Um, and it was operated to steal information from IT systems. Uh, there's lots of concern about what could have happened to OT systems, but there's no evidence that the malware was actively exploited to impact industrial control systems at all. So it, it's it's a, a worry about what could have happened more than what did happen. Fair enough. But to what Dr. Baugh said, um, is what he suggested that uh, SIP-13 would have 
prevented the Solarwind breach? It's more complicated than that. I mean, uh, he talked about notification mechanisms, and SIP 13 has a, a provision that says you've got to require your vendors to tell the power companies when you've got a serious incident like this. And SolarWinds did this. They were up front. They discovered the incident. You know, well, FireEye discovered the incident. They notified SolarWinds. The next day, SolarWinds had an alert out to all our customers saying, our software up update's been compromised. Don't install the software update. So, Today, you know, if someone, if a power utility has downloaded the compromised update and they have it sitting on a, a hard disk or sitting on a, a, a CD, you know, somewhere, and uh, they're thinking of updating their solar wind software, they've been notified. They know that they can't use that compromise thing. It's preventing the compromise from spreading today. Uh, that that's that's the piece in in SIP thirteen that was relevant to to SolarWinds is the notification of of the of the compromise once SolarWinds once the vendor became aware of it. I see, and I don't recall him explaining um, what is SIP eight because it kind of seemed at the end of his answer there that uh, that that one was the key. Yeah, but again. It, SIP-8 is relevant to the SolarWinds incident, but SIP-8 is about incident response. So once the vendor has notified you, hey, my software update was compromised, if you install it, you need to deal with this, that's when SIP-8 kicks into action because there's procedures and there's mechanisms that the, the power companies are required to have to respond to this kind of compromise. And they applied all of those procedures back in December when they learned of the compromise. Okay, so... Taking all of this together, then, um, my last question, I guess, would be, you know, back in December, before anyone knew of this malware, uh, is there anything that SIP could have done to prevent this? You know, that's the bad news. I'm not aware of anything in SIP 13 or SIP 8 or anywhere else in SIP that would have prevented this. You know, somebody broke into the SolarWinds organization and inserted a nasty into the source code for the, the, the SolarWinds thing. And it wound up, the nasty wound up in a SolarWinds software update. In fact, in recent, you know, recent weeks, we've learned that there was actually two different organizations broke into SolarWinds and dropped a nasty. There's two different nasties in the software updates. Um, and, you know, these were signed by SolarWinds. They were, they appeared to be authentic software updates. They were there for download on the SolarWinds website. People downloaded them, people installed them. I am not aware of anything in NERC-SIP that would have prevented this. This is this is a real nasty. This is a new nasty that, that everyone's scratching their heads trying to figure out, what are we going to do about this in the long run? And I don't think there's an answer yet. So that's been very enlightening on the on the supply chain side. But NERC-SIP, you know, is in a sense constantly evolving. What else is coming in, in the in the SIP world? Is there other stuff on the horizon we should be watching for? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, there are always major concerns over cyber and physical attacks on the North American electrical grid by both foreign adversaries and other bad actors. So although NERC registered entities should be compliant with SIP 13-1, version 2 is already in the standard drafting team phase and may introduce more essential cyber assets such as electronic access control and monitoring systems and physical access control systems into the supply chain mix. Uh, 
FERC has also expressed much concern over the relatively lax cyber and physical security protections for low-impact BES assets. I mentioned earlier these represent approximately 85% of all control centers, transmission stations, and generation facilities across the electrical grid. Uh, we've already seen numerous revisions to the SIP-3 standard, which is currently at SIP-3-8, that requires increasingly more prescribed protective measures and controls for low-impact BCS and their associated cyber assets. I think this trend at FERC is going to continue. I think that the direction is to move low-impact BCS closer and closer to the protections required for medium-impact BCS. If and when FERC approves SIP 13-2, I fully expect the commissioners to direct NERC to move immediately to providing significant supply chain risk management for low-impact BES cyber systems as well. So one of the key issues surrounding low-impact BCS, which are not protected to a great extent, I mean, they are to some degree, by the NERC SIP standards, is because the cyber assets associated with these systems really represent low-hanging fruit for cyber and physical attack. Since low-impact BCS are connected electronically to high-impact BCS and medium impact at control centers and other larger substations. They provide attractive attack vectors into these higher impact control systems. Although not widely publicized industrial control systems such as EMS SCADA systems at NERC control systems or our control centers are under constant probing and attack. A significant countermeasure to prevent these probes from becoming malicious attacks is to keep cyber and physical security awareness at the top of employees' minds. Uh, SIP 4-6 does require regular cybersecurity awareness, but that just provides a minimal level of awareness. Uh, prudent entities that go far beyond the required training help ensure their employees do not become that weakest link in the cybersecurity chain. At Guidehouse, we support the development and delivery of effective training programs, not just in cyber and physical security awareness, but across the entire set of the SIP and the operations and planning, which is really the operational part of this NERC standards. So we provide training to help people raise that awareness. Just as a side note, uh, among my IT and cybersecurity certifications, I also hold what's known as the ACES Triple Crown of Physical Security Certifications, the PSP, CPP, and PCI. There are actually fewer than 300 Triple Crown holders around the globe, but our team has two, myself and my colleague, Darren Nelson. We also work together on the SIP team at WEC and initiated the SIP 14 audit approaches. So we now provide consulting services to support client efforts to comply with physical security precautions as well as, as cyber security measures. Um, I think that's what's really the hot topics right now across the industry. You mentioned FERC's concern about low-impact devices. I mean, something, a related concern that I've had for some time is that with the, you know, the 100K threshold for what is the bulk electric system. FERC has a, a mandate to protect the bulk electric system. Distribution systems tend to be out of scope unless they have elements that are, you know, above 100, 100 kV is, is the way I understand it. Is that accurate? And, you know, is it, my, my concern is that, um, you know, 
take the hundred biggest um, um, municipalities in North America. Um, some of them, you know, even if they're out of scope for NERC SIP, some of them are going to be well secured just because there's variation. Some of them are going to be poorly secured. If the bad guys, you know, find a handful of poorly secured municipalities and break into them and shut the lights off for 5 million people in, you know, four different cities because they don't need to do any security. Is that a real concern or, you know, have I, have I missed the boat there somehow? Uh, no, not at all. In fact, I share your concern over the distribution systems being out of scope. Uh, one of the problems is there are so many of those systems out there. As I mentioned, the lower you go in the voltage levels, the number of systems increases exponentially. So the NERC-SIP standards were set up as a risk-based approach, and that's why you have the three category, impact rating categories that you do, low impact, medium impact, and high impact, based on the potential impact to the grid as a whole. Uh, you're correct that the distribution providers, which is the DP function in NERC terminology, only have a very limited number of systems that come in the scope for SIP, and they come in as low impact. I think I would like to see more stringent requirements for distribution providers, but currently it's totally on a voluntary best practice. And as you've mentioned, uh, some entities are very diligent about it and others not so much. Okay, well, that's a sobering note. But thank you for your uh, your comments and your insights. Before we bid you good day, um, is there a thought you'd like to leave with our listeners? Yes, I think so. Uh, I've spent quite a bit of time lately comparing the NERCSIP standards and other cybersecurity guidelines and best practices across the electrical and natural gas sectors with the NIST cybersecurity framework and other best practices program. And one key thought springs from that work. Cyber and physical security responsibilities and protective measures are the responsibility of each employee, contractor, or vendor who accesses or uses any cyber system that touches the electrical grid. We all must ensure that our actions do not inadvertently or otherwise open an attack vector for the bad actors who are constantly seeking to access control systems, not just in the electrical grid, but literally across all 16 of the identified critical public infrastructure sectors. Uh, this responsibility cannot be ignored and it cannot be reduced to minimum compliance efforts required by the NERC-SIP standards. We must all remain vigilant and alert to potential attack vectors and support the subject matter experts who provide and implement specific protective measures and controls. Um, I guess in closing, I'd just like to say GuideHouse can meet all regulatory compliance and security requirements that an organization may have. Although I work primarily in the electrical sector across the gamut of the NERC reliability standards, we are fortunate to have an experience and background base on the greater guidehouse team whose breadth and depth is unmatched by many of our competitors. And if our listeners are experiencing challenges either in cyber or physical security in their environments, I encourage them to reach out to a local guidehouse team. Andrew, what would you like as your last word? Well, Nate, you know, 
supply chain is the timely topic. Um, if you remember a few episodes ago, I think it was episode 44, Spencer Wilcox was on. He's the chief security officer at PM Resources, and they manage a number of utilities. Um, you know, the bottom line in the in the supply chain world, the supply chain security world, is that I see the pendulum swinging. I mean, for decades, there's been a trend towards globalization where, you know, components from all over the world are assembled into products in different places and shipped all over the world. Um, and some of these products are being deployed into critical infrastructures, which introduces risk. And, uh, you know, it introduces risk when the suppliers are controlled by unfriendly nations. It, it introduces risk when the suppliers have been compromised by, I don't know, organized crime or something. This is a really difficult problem. You know, SIP 13 and the, the American executive order are approaches to dealing with that risk. But, you know, I think they're only first steps. I think it's reasonable to expect to see, you know, continued evolution of these measures for the foreseeable future because this is a risk that really hasn't been considered before and i i think we're only we're only just starting down the road here all right thanks to dr joseph bob for speaking with you andrew and andrew as always thank you for speaking with me always a pleasure thank you nate this has been the industrial security podcast from waterfall thanks to everybody listening mm-hmm.